Hey folks, this is your frequent host, Wes Dodson. We're going to be talking about student government here at the University of Texas at Austin. And so full disclosure, I am the Chief Justice of the Student Government Supreme Court, which is one of the three bodies of the student government here at the university. And so I can't delve into any of the specifics for candidates or their platforms for risk of you know looking biased or expressing approval or disapproval. So I want to say at the top of the podcast that the views expressed by Matthew and Candace are their own. Uh, I don't approve or disapprove. If I don't comment on their views or respond to their views, that does not express approval or disapproval. When I delve into the policies and structure of student government, my positions are my own. They are not representative of the court. If my positions happen to align with any of the positions that the current candidates hold, that is merely coincidental and does not express approval or disapproval of any of the candidates that are in this election. Thanks. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window open it and stick your head out and yell i'm as mad as hell and i'm not gonna take this anymore howdy folks matthew here is huffing glue candace is our resident hufflepuff and i'm about to huff puff and blow this house of cards down as we talk about ut student government today this is the bi-monthly Texas Order podcast, also known as the Slow Motion Live to Tape Stroke, where I and a few of the other Order members join you to talk about current events and campus issues. I am your frequent host, Wes Dodson, but today I'm going to be passing the mic off to Candace because I'm also the Chief Justice of the Student Government Supreme Court and am therefore embargoed from speaking on certain issues on this topic. So, Candace, if you want to take it away. Thank you for that introduction, Wes, and for that lovely intro to the show, as always. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Candace Baker. I am the culture editor and one of the managing editors at the Texas Orator. Uh, trust me, I am al- always in the room monitoring when these podcasts are recorded. And Wes, as Wes knows, I usually sit in the corner and roll my eyes at their... Very interesting banter. So today I will be your host. Uh, Hopefully I will be able to live up to the standard set by my predecessor. So I say we just get right into it. Yeah, well, as I I sit here drinking like the Ajit Pai Reese's mug of Shiner beers, audience can't see this, but this is a a ridiculous... It's a giant Shiner Shiner. It's huge. It can only be for the good that Candace is taking the reins. Also, I want to point out... I take offense to the fact that you said I'm a Hufflepuff. I, I'm most definitely a Ravenclaw asshole. So Ooh, uh, We will debate that for the non-existent Patreon subscribers. Um, that's going to be extra content added on to the order website. But Candace is almost definitely a Hufflepuff. 
So you want to get into the shits? Yes, let's get into the shits. So as anyone who's been listening to anything oh, probably Oh, I'm Matthew knows, Cox, by the way. Oh, I apologize. <laughs> we have our SG enthusiast here, Matthew Cox, who, my goodness, is at pretty much every uh, ESB hearing that there ever is. Uh, and we probably would not be able to have live updates were it not for his dedication. So Matthew, thank you very much. Anytime. I'm very glad to be here. It's always fun, as always. All right. Well, let's, again, third time's a charm. Let's get back into it. So, um, as anyone who's been paying attention to anything has known, of course, we have had, um, I'm not going to say a scandal within the uh, student government elections, but... I'd prefer you didn't. <laughs> but, you know, as as is every year, we there was a bit of a, a controversy uh, with the Connor and Camille campaign uh, having to do with uh, accusations of early campaigning and subsequent fines that led to them being disqualified. So, Mr. Chief Justice, if we could get you to comment, I know that there are some things here that you might not be able to comment on. And if if we touch on one of those, please just let me know. But uh, if you could kind of give us the, the lowdown or the rundown of uh, the situation and the procedures of what happened. Sure. So I'm going to take off the robes and put on my Texas Order hat. So I'm speaking not as the Chief Justice, but just as a kind of interested commentator. Um, so the general timeline of events was that on Friday of last week, um, so not this most recent Friday, but the, the one before, the ESB resolution 2020-002, rather, issued a 28% fine to the Connor and Camille campaign for failing to file campaign materials with the ESB as required by section 4.6 of the election code. So what essentially that means is candidates have to file their branded campaign materials with the election supervisory board for approval, both in terms of just making sure that everything's on the up and up with um, the university policies regarding the use of university logos, but also just to make sure that everything abides by the code. And several candidates in several campaigns failed to do so, and the, the ESB issued a raft of fines um, for those violations on Friday night. The court received an appeal um, the following day, Saturday, um, and decided to accept that intent for an appeal, but to defer a decision on whether to accept the appeal for a full hearing till the following day, Sunday. The candidates presented arguments, and the court then declined to hear the appeal for lack of a valid basis. Um, so what that essentially means is the candidates then were, you know, had that fine on their record. And the way that fines work, and I know that there's some confusion about reductions versus additions, but the way that fines work is you take the campaign spending, divide it by the spending limit of $511 to get a percentage of, of the limit spent. So, for instance, in this case, we had about $452.02 of spending. Divide that by 511, you get to about 88.5% of spending. And then from there on, fines are strictly additive. So the 28% fine was added onto that to get to 116.5%. So that's the kind of background information going into ESB resolution 2020-003, which is the early campaigning resolution. So what we had there was a complainant issued 
uh, a complaint alleging that the campaigns had reached or that the Connor and Camille campaign had reached out via email before the election period started or sorry, before the campaign period started um, in violation of the election code. And this is all public information. This is not privileged or, or what have you. Um, and so the ESB heard that in a hearing, which Matthew attended on Monday, and issued a resolution, resolution 2020-003, which contained a 5% fine for violations of the unauthorized campaigning provisions of the election code. So with that 5% fine, they are over the 120% automatic disqualification limit that is outlined in the student government-specific election code. So as of Monday night when the ESP delivered its resolution, the campaign was disqualified pending appeal. The campaign decided to appeal that decision to the court um, that was delivered to the court Tuesday. The court decided to accept the appeal and set it for hearing on Wednesday, and the complainants, or sorry, the appellants, raised essentially three issues on appeal that the court accepted for argument. One was regarding, you know, what the system of financial disclosures has to look like. Um, can you amend it after you submit the financial disclosure? What are the regulations regarding that? The second was just whether or not the, the email did in fact constitute early campaigning. And the third was a discussion of what the proper role of the ESB is in a hearing in the, the initial proceedings. So the court accepted that for hearing. We had hearing for, oh, it was a long one. I think it lasted from 7.30 till about 10, um, where we initially came to a, a determination that Yes, in fact, the ESB's factual determination that the email constituted early campaigning was, in fact, correct based on the evidence provided to the ESB at the hearing, and therefore um, we moved on to the first and third arguments that the appellant offered and heard those, and then we issued a, a decision essentially affirming the disqualification and, and clarifying some of the haziness regarding financial disclosures and the role of the ESB in a hearing. We released that decision Thursday, I guess Thursday morning, because it was about 12.45 a.m., and then the full opinion came out Friday. Um, so with that, the disqualification was affirmed, and the Connor and Camille campaign essentially is, is no longer. And Matthew, given that you were at these hearings, I'd, I'd like you to kind of detail you know what was your what what was it that you experienced while you were there and kind of what was the general vibe that you got while uh while watching these proceedings well i i had first I, before anything i want to say that the esb was jovial and nice as always because you know they get a bad rap but like they're really genuine about hey come in yeah you're fine photos are cool everything's cool i got some decent ones too um but when it came to the actual hearing it was kind of a little bit off in places like for instance the representative of the person going against them i'm not sure if i can say their name but i think it's on the record so it yeah i'm getting a nod um if frost was it so olivia frost was the complainant and she was represented by an agent whose name i actually don't quite remember i have it written down in my notes but unfortunately i don't have those on me which is my fault sorry about that but she was representative there and she actually had to leave after her um, retort statement which was interesting like, because it, it didn't seem like the complainants really were there to complain as, like, it didn't affect them personally. It was just they noticed the violation and brought it forward. 
the retorts we got from the Connor campaign. Connor was there. Camille was not. Connor had two other representatives with them, um, including uh, a man by the name of Fox. I believe it was Fox Walter, who was Fox Walker. Sorry, who um, was the one who had actually sent the email, and also a representative of their own. It was just a bit of a weird set of situations because you could kind of tell off the bat that the ESB kind of had a bit of a conclusion about the case. Not specifically that they had like a premeditated bias towards anyone, but having looked at the the facts, they kind of seemed to know where they were going with it. And they ended up being right, at least when it came to the conclusion that the email was a general email and not like specifically for this particular person, which was the kind of hinge on whether or not it counted as pre-campaigning or not. And I'll admit, I agree. The email reads as such, starting with Dear Club or Organization, which is not a personal way to start an email at all, especially since it was emailed to the club organization's email and not the um, Olivia Frost's personal email either. So it, in all intents and purposes, from my perspective, it looks like a just judgment there. Yeah, so I'm going to put my robes back on briefly to say that I neither you know, affirm or approve or deny Matthew's statement in any way. What I will say is that the... ESB, based on the email presented to the ESB, came to a factual determination that, as Matthew mentioned, it was not a personalized in- email in that it was not, you know, tailored to the specific uh, recipient. And they came to a determination that it was sent to multiple recipients. Um, the court, based on the standard of review of clear error, so when you hear an appeal, um, what you're supposed to be doing is, is analyzing the, the record and um, analyzing the application of the election documents to the factual determinations of the lower court. You're not, you know, unless the factual determinations are clearly erroneous, um, they, they, they stand. So the court, based on that standard, said that, yes, in fact, the ESB's factual determinations stand because appellant did not meet its burden of proof to overturn those factual determinations with new evidence. Yeah. Um, One of the things I also noticed when I was looking at previous cases, which are kind of hard to navigate, the archives online are not perfectly complete on this, but a lot of previous cases where pre-campaigning was an issue, uh, they had much higher fines. So actually, the ESB was a little bit lenient here. It's just it's unfortunate that it landed as uh, as it did, at least in my personal opinion. It's unfortunate that it landed as it did. Interestingly enough, after the like when uh, after the ESB board finished their hearing, um, Connor immediately went downstairs because downstairs in the same building at that time was the um, the debate for the actual the the actual executive council debates downstairs and you could see it seemed to have an effect on him during the debate i didn't stay for the whole thing but i did notice that connor seemed kind of like he had you know it had been taken out of him he didn't know the result at that point in time but you could definitely tell he's not the jovial self i know him to be yeah i know there was i think it was either a picture you took matthew or that the daily texan took someone posted it online i took the photo you took it it was yours um of of connor at the esb hearing and fox was next to him and the soul just looked like it had been sucked out of him because i think i I'm not going to presume, but like it, it sounded like it was kind of a pretty clear cut situation. I'm, I'm not going to I can't presume or whatnot, but um, yeah, he, he did not look like the Connor that I'm used to seeing on social media. Yeah, well, what I will say about that is there the code in the election documents do not prescribe a standard of evidence. So just to kind of delineate here. There was some discussion on appeal, um, and these documents, by the way, are, are all available for the public. Uh, you can you can email the court 
requesting those, but there was some discussion in appeal of the burden of proof versus the standard of proof. And so burden of proof is just who has to, you know, provide the evidence, who has to make the argument, you know, against the status quo. So the status quo in a lower hearing is that there is no violation. So it's upon the complainant to essentially provide evidence challenging that status quo, saying that there is, in fact, a, a violation of the code. However, the standard of proof is different in that it's the kind of amount or level of, of confidence um, that a, a judicial uh, decider must have in their decision. So you've got three possible standards, preponderance of evidence, which is typically thought of as 50 plus a feather, 51%, what have you. You've got the clear and convincing evidence standard, which is 75%, roughly speaking. These are all quite nebulous. And then you've got the... Um, beyond a reasonable doubt standard which most people think of as you know you have no lingering doubt in your mind some people say 95 some people say 99 percent. some people say 99.99 percent they're they're all all various standards but because the election documents don't prescribe a specific standard the esb adopted the clear and convincing evidence standard in their hearing and, and decided upon that that based on the evidence presented they were confident to the degree of that standard that the facts supported their determinations. So I, you know, I, I won't say it was clear cut. I won't say it was, you know, black and white. I will just say that that is the kind of way that those decisions are made. And that's how the ESB proceeded along those grounds. Yeah. I noticed there, there was a uh, argument to be made and the Connor, there was an argument to be made and the Connor campaign did make it that, they didn't prove that there were other emails sent to other people, that this was the only email that was noted being sent, which is a decent argument. It was just hit by the fact that it was a generalized template of an email. Yeah, and, and um, you know, again, this is this is all public record. Uh, the court has audio you know, recordings of, of the hearing that it held, but um, in the hearing that we held, you know, we had Fox Walker pass around a laptop um, showing the Gmail interface because there was some question about what does the Gmail interface actually show? Does it show the two recipient in a BCC email? We had it passed around um, and and the court, you know, found that this, the evidence at least, did not overturn the, the um, ESB's, you know, factual determination so it, it was not clear from the evidence presented in that hearing that it was sent to an individual recipient individualized to that recipient so I, I i can't speak as to whether you know the court clearly saw that it was was mass campaigning because those are factual determinations outside the scope of the court but i i can say that the court felt that the appellant did not overturn or or meet their burden of proof to overturn the factual determinations in the lower court though to use candace's uh the phrasing earlier of scandal if this is this year's scandal that'll be delightful i think i think we all remember the the colton and mariz debacle what was it freshman year that was that was that was that was probably the longest process i've ever witnessed in 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 sg it was just it was a marathon just just so listeners are caught up to speed that was a situation where this was before um matthew's work actually with the the ranked voting system yes that wouldn't come into effect until the next election right so what happened there is that the um the was it ibrahim and guniz campaign or Mm -hmm. yeah um 
they got disqualified by the ESB um, in a in a hearing that touched on issues of deceptive campaigning. Um, the Colton Moraz campaign actually won, I think, with enough votes in the initial mm-hmm. election, but the court overturned, and this was before I joined the court, the court overturned the disqualification. Therefore, they had to hold another election. At that election, the Colton Moraz campaign did not get the sufficient number of votes, um, and so that uh, instituted a runoff between the um, Ibrahim and Guniz campaign and the Colton Moraz campaign, where eventually Colton Moraz were the victors. But that, I think, it, it extended what is typically a two-week election period or campaigning period into, oh, I think it was something like four or five weeks. It was it was a long yeah. time. Well, and if I remember correctly, you know, there were, there were other issues, I think, that were being brought up, like on social media mm-hmm. um, by people kind of around these campaigns. And it got ugly, yep. I, I remember, on social media. It was, you know... It was it was really easy to forget that this is a student government election because there were just a lot of other issues that were brought into it that yeah. that made it uglier than it probably specifically needed to be. the main issue that was brought into it for some reason. Keep in mind that this is a student government election we were talking about. The main issue on hand was Israel Palestine on one or two state solutions, which is completely outside the scope of anyone's uh, campaign, but it was the issue that people were fighting over. Yeah, and I remember writing an article to that effect at the time. I think it's called like the nationalization of student government elections, essentially making the point that student government, I mean, they're free to you know speak with the voice of the student body on political issues as they have done in the past. Um, but in terms of the, the real world impact of those statements, especially when it comes to you know Israel-Palestine relations, let's be realistic. You know, the, that, that, for that to be a defining, you know, position or, or, or a defining issue in a student government campaign really does kind of strain credulity. And I and I, I think that kind of, you know, unless there, there are any other real questions about the proceedings and whatnot, um, I, I think that's a good segue into talking just more broadly about what the student government actually can do at the university and, and being realistic about the kind of budget that student government has and the powers that they actually have. Cause I think we hear a lot. And I, and again, I can't speak to any specifics with this election cycle, but I think we hear a lot um, from campaigns about things that might realistically exceed the, the power of student government. Um, I can speak to that though, at the very least when it comes to the, some of the various platforms at the debate night, uh, quite a few, when, when making opening statements, quite a few of the campaigns um, touched on trying to uh, lower housing costs around the campus and even going so far as to suggest lobbying either the uh, city or the state when it comes to fixing the housing in Austin, which is a nice sentiment, but as at I believe it was the Bergman campaign stepped up and stated, is completely outside of the scope of student government. I mean, the closest we come to that is, uh, is you know, a little pressure on the administration for dormitory pricing, but after that, there's basically nothing nothing they can do well and that's one of the things so i had the pleasure of interviewing adam and james for a recent order article just about their platform and their campaign and that was one of the things that they touched on you know their platform is only four four things if you compare that to the simona and lynn platform like it's it's pretty short and, and to the point 
but they said that that was intentional and they said you know really you only have a year you have less than a year because even though when you're president vice president you're working over the summer but you can't pass legislation over the summer so really you have less than a year to get all these things done and they just felt that it wasn't fair to promise to the student body we're going to do this 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 and this these things that take you know elected officials with multiple years in office they still haven't gotten it done. Right. So, so really, is it real? Is it realistic to think that uh, the executive alliance at UT Austin is going to be able to get them done? Yeah, and so again, I, I I can't speak to specifically in this election cycle whose policies are more within the scope of of student government or or less or outside or or what have you. But what I can say is that the main limitation on student government is its budget so student government gets about one hundred and twelve thousand dollars a year and that is broken down in shall we say in an interesting way um, i've written about this in the past and so essentially what we've got are three kind of main categories which i will call kind of administrative cost agency costs, and then direct disbursements. So within direct disbursements, you've got funds that are distributed directly to organizations. Um, within agency costs, student government has, I mean, a, a plethora of, of agencies that all kind of do different things, and those are all supported um, within the student government budget. And then administrative costs go to supporting the stipends of the executive alliance, um, stipends of the executive alliance board, or um, those on the kind of exec board, and then um, the operating expenses as well as tuition allotments for the executive alliance. So, historically, and this is as far as I have records, student government spends roughly half of its funds on on administrative or overhead cost. Um, so that includes $6,840 in stipends for the president and vice president, $3,420 for each of their five people on the exec board, so that's $30,780 in stipends total, as well as tuition allotments of $10,400, and those are $5,200 for each of the president and vice president. So, on top of that, you've got another ten thousand five in operating expenses and some other kind of knickknack, you know, overhead costs stuck in there as well. So, what what we mean when we say, or what I mean when I say the the budget is the main limitation there, is that what's left over is all that they have. So, you can think of the the Constitution kind of delineates this role for student government as being stewards of the $112,000 that they get and and you know it it charges them with furthering student interest with those funds. Well, they're using about 50% of those funds to spend the other 50%. And those numbers are imprecise, but if you want to think about it is the 50% in in overhead is us paying student government to spend the other money in their budget. Um, and this is something you'll hear a lot when it comes to the stipends argument. You know, originally stipends were proposed as something to kind of level the playing field, give economic access to, you know, people who can't be the president and vice president of the university and also work at the same time. There are, there are reasonable, you know, reasonable economic limitations. 
And the common refrain you'll hear from candidates is, well, this is a full-time job. And again, I want to say I'm totally taking my robes off and have my order hat here. My response to that is just work less. You know, it's it's they're talking about how much time is spent on these things. And I, I, I just struggle to buy the argument that we are paying these these people a full, you know, more than a, a, a minimum wage salary. If you look at the conceivable hours that they could possibly spend on this more than a minimum wage salary to do this job, given the stipends and tuition allotments. Just give that to organizations. I struggle to imagine that, you know, some some people at the top are better stewards of student funds than student organizations or the students themselves. And so when we talk about these big, big, broad, you know, campaign promises, we have to view that in the realistic scenario that, most of student government's money is tied up in administrative costs and the other spending on in the other 50% has barely fluctuated. So there are agencies that have to be supported. There are student government uh, or there, there are organization direct disbursements that haven't really fluctuated. They've always been around $20,000. So when we're talking about the money freed up for these other big ones, it's just not there. Um, and so I think we have to be realistic about the structure of student government when we're looking at these campaign platforms. And again, I, that doesn't mean, you know, X candidate is more realistic than Y candidate, but that is the general outline or the, the general structure of student government. And that is kind of the limit on their capabilities. It, it is interesting because um, one of the main platform points of Simona and Lynn campaigns, uh, yeah, the Simona and Lynn campaign, is that they say they're going to give back their stipends and i asked adam and james about this you know it, it is a good question like you know why should students have faith in sg when when so much of that money goes to admin costs and uh, adam brought up a good point I, I personally never knew about this you know he said yes it is like a full-time job but also you're very limited in the number of hours you can take if um as a student when you're president or vice president so he said they're they're only going to be able to take about six hours mm -hmm. so he said one of the things is that like they're going to probably end up it's going to push back their graduation time. Mm -hmm. And he just said, you know, that's a sacrifice that we're willing to make. By the way, I'm not in endorsing any candidate or campaign. This is just, I, I had a direct conversation with Adam and James. So they're the ones that I perhaps am the most well acquainted with. Um, but yeah, he, he made what I thought was a fair argument that, you know, we're, we're having to push back our timeline of our education, but we're doing it for the sake of being able to serve the student body. That's not exclusive to Adam either. A lot of the other campaigns also, have noted that they would have to graduate later or they had intended on graduating earlier but will have to push it back to the normal time because of if they win which is i mean that it is technically an intense amount of time yeah and and look and i i don't want to respond to those people specifically i, I just want to talk about the broader kind of structure of the job there is i i take you know an argument um, that an executive alliance does have to put in a lot of hours. They, they, and that, that is genuine. The question that students have to ask themselves with regards to this is, what, are, are we paying that executive alliance? Because that's essentially what it is. I mean, the student government constitution charges the student government with spending these funds in the furtherance of student interest. And it's not like if we got rid of the stipends that would lop off that portion of the budget. That portion would be fungible with the rest of the budget and could be allocated 
directly to student organizations as it is in the $20,000 that is already direct disbursement. So I, I think the question that students have to ask themselves, and I've written about this for the order, is, you know, is, is that money well spent? You know, are, are those hours necessary? Um, and, and second, what are the personal, you know, benefits outside the, the, the kind of, you know, intangible benefits that, that student government uh, executive alliance candidates are, are getting you know i i think those you know those uh, benefits are real there there are resume benefits you know in fact um the executive alliance is yearly flown out to dc um my i i don't know if that's all expenses paid or whether that's paid by student government or where the funds come for that but there are personal benefits and i and i think we have to be realistic about the argument that you know it, it it's no one's forcing, no one's holding a gun to anybody's head and, and forcing them to, you know, run for office. If the incentives aren't there, absent a stipend, you know, that doesn't, that that's not coercion. It, that, that's not, you know, not giving somebody money is not, you know, withholding that money. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that just kind of broadly speaking about the issue of stipends, Students really do have to kind of wonder, you know, is 50% of the budget being spent, and I think that the actual number is something more like 48%, um, you know, is, is roughly half of the budget being spent on administrative cost or being spent to spend the rest of the budget, something that they're they're willing to tolerate. And, you know, for me, I, I'm, I'm not going to give the answer, but I think most people could intuit it. Um, I'm, I'm very sensitive to that money being kind of, something that should be in the furtherance of student interest. And I believe, you know, I, I take students at their word when they say they know their own interest for themselves. And when I think about my time at the university, it is almost entirely structured by the organizations I've been in. Um, you know, the order is, is a great example of something that, you know, when students have autonomy over how they use funds, they have the, op the opportunity to do something incredible. And that that's something I think the order has done, and, and that should be, an example for how a system like that could work with you give students autonomy over funds that should be in the furtherance of their interest. Well, their interests are theirs to decide. It, 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 it kind of boggles my mind that we are all accepting a system where others decide our interest for us in the way that, that those funds are dispersed. Um, so yeah, and that's, that's something that, you know, it's kind of baked into the, the, structure of any political system, student government included. Um, but I, I think it's something that exists on a spectrum, and we are currently on a, on a rather far end of that spectrum towards, you know, a lack of autonomy with, with students' engagement or, or a lack of autonomy that students have over their own funds. Well, moving on from the topic of stipends, Matthew, I want to talk to you about some of the more specific uh, campaign platforms. So just a disclaimer here, um, there are several Executive Alliance candidates in this election. I, I, I lost count at a certain point. And uh, so we will be focusing on what we consider to be probably the, the top three or the three who have perhaps the best chance at winning. And when Candace is saying we, she means Matthew. Yes, Wes will herself. not be engaging here as uh, he, he just well, can't. I, I, can, I can engage to some extent, but I decline to endorse the ranking of the yes. top three. But um, we, uh, we'd also like to, I want to make a disclaimer here that we are not endorsing any of these candidates. Uh, the order is not taking a particular position. Uh, our purpose here is to inform you all, the voters, the students, 
students uh, because voting begins this week and we feel that an informed voter is a better voter. So getting on to that, we're going to start with the Adam and James campaign because that is the one that I'm the most familiar with. So uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Adam Bergman and James Comerford are both third years uh, here at UT Austin. Their platform consists of four main points. Uh, the first, and what Adam described to me as being the most important to them, is sexual assault and misconduct awareness. So that includes uh, changing the programming at orientation, um, because I think we all remember the um, the orientation programming, at least when we were freshmen, was, was not taken very seriously by a lot of students. And sexual misconduct and sexual assault and you know dating violence, those are very important issues that we need to be addressing. So that's uh, their number one. Uh, number two is mental health awareness, specifically uh, for the specific school. So as of right now, the Cockrell School of Engineering and Macomb School of Business are the only two schools here at UT uh, that have specific, unique mental health weeks that are um, tailored to the demands that each school places upon its students. And the reality is, as, as Adam and James explained to me, the reality is that it's uh in james's word it's hard to be a longhorn no matter what you do and so uh they feel that every school needs to be having uh those those specific mental health programs to address um all of the demands that they place on their students uh and then the last two kind of go together um so transparency obviously specifically with sexual misconduct i know this has been a big deal on campus um with the uh recent news that there were several professors who were found to have violated the misconduct um misconduct policies on campus who were still allowed to teach and that information was not made public students could not know whether or not the classes they were registering for were being taught by uh potential predators that was an issue so that would that's a big thing that they want to address and then uh accountability and longevity basically building upon camera uh current president cameron goodman's uh promise of um a continuity committee to basically ensure that the ideas of previous administrations aren't just forgotten when the new administration comes in because as a reminder the term is one year but really less than a year because they can't pass legislation during the summer and when executive alliances are elected they're elected based on ideas that the students like obviously and so the goal there is to just ensure that um that those ideas aren't just lost when new administrations come in well, I mean, they're all, I mean, it, it's a much more concise platform, which you've got to admire because it means they're going to be on goal for this entire session. Um, and I especially do like the fact that they're handling the uh, continuity committee from Cameron Goodman, which is probably one of the best ideas that any president has ever had in this uh, uh, SG, thanks to the fact that, as you're right, everyone's term is less than a year, which means every single person gets replaced on a yearly basis, almost certainly. Some people do, you know, do the career politician of a year or two uh, together, but for the most part, since all that information tends to get lost, we don't really get as much done as they would like to. So it's nice to see the kind of consistency of um, the platform they have. But one might ask the question whether or not it's maybe uh, a bit less ambitious than it should be. Right. I think what was it like in the real presidential election? Warren said who, you know, um, who would go through with the um, all the trouble of becoming president uh, only to tell us that we can't do things. Mm -hmm. That's I mean, that's a good point. I, I will say the one thing I like about this this platform these here is that I look at all these things and I think, you know what? Yeah, they can do that. You know, I, I don't feel like they're 
any of this is beyond the scope of student government necessarily. I, I feel like it's relatively, you know, reasonable when you look at it. But to your point, some people might ask, you know, why not, you know, go big or go home, right? You know, why don't push for these for these um, larger reforms? Kind of kind of going to segue then into the Simona and Lynn campaign, because in comparison, you know, their campaign, I, I'm going to say, is pretty ambitious. It's their platform is pretty long. Um, of course, all issues that we've heard before that that are certainly important to students, you know, sexual I'll, I'll, I'll highlight a few here. So sexual misconduct and mental health. Another um, same as Adam and James. Um, but also they really want to tackle um, issues of affordable housing, advocating for um, more affordable options for students, especially in West Campus, um, graduate student pay. I know that this is an issue that has been um, at the forefront of, of discussion for, uh, for a little bit. Um, expanding access to menstrual products, uh, better representation of uh, marginalized groups within academia. Uh, they do plan on giving back their stipends. Um, they uh, have an idea for a pop-up farmer's market, which honestly I can't quite disagree with. I think that'd be kind of fun. Uh, and also environmental sustainability at UT. And that's just to name a few. Obviously, if you want to learn more about any of these platforms, I highly recommend going to visit the candidates' websites because they will explain these in much better detail than we can here. Um, but what I have to say about this is I, I admire the the gumption here. They're, you know, obviously when you think about it, they're not going to be able to solve the affordable housing crisis if, if they're elected. Like we, you know, Austin city council still hasn't solved the affordable housing crisis. Um, but I, I have to respect the fact that they're, you know, putting it out there that these are the issues that they care about. Cause really these are issues that affect students. Matthew, Matthew, what do you have to say about this? I do like the fact that they are casting a bit of a wider net. One thinks that they'll probably miss a few of these initiatives, but if they can get, you know, a, a decent portion of them done, it'll be nice to see that. Some of the initiatives do feel a little bit kind of like fl almost like their little flares, like, for instance, the uh, sustainability flag on natural course credits. Just I mean, that's cute, but it doesn't it would be hard to necessitate where that would appear and to also convince the actual boards in charge of that to get those things implemented. But at least a few of them seem very, very useful, especially when it comes to what seems to be their main platform when it comes to survivors of sexual assault, which is half the reason they're running, if memory serves. It makes me it makes me really happy to see sexual assault and misconduct being at the forefront of SG elections, because obviously, you know, I, I was at that panel that they had with, with uh, Greg Fenves and administration a few weeks ago. And let me tell you, it, it was, it got heated and it was, it was a very intense environment. And it's very clear that, you know, this is an issue that students care about because really it's about student safety. And I'm just, I'm glad to see that these candidates are, are taking it seriously. Yeah, I think every platform, including uh, the Connor and Camille platform, ex and excluding Brendan and Walsh, uh, had as their main issue being sexual assault. The only reason Brendan and Walsh, uh, sorry, Brendan and Max didn't have it, and the only reason Brendan and Max didn't have it is their main platform is that their platform is that they have no platform. So yeah, it's, it's very good to see that issues, at least that are important to the students, are the important issues that we are tackling. And then our third and final platform here is the Onaga and Winston platform. I would say that this is a good middle ground between Adam and James and Simone and Lynn in that like they have some broad kind of ambitious things here, but it's not like a super long list. It seems like they kind of condensed it a little bit. Um, so one I liked is um, sending regular student government updates to the to the student body, making sure that everyone is aware of, of what's going on and how their money is being spent, things like that. Um 
uh, an emphasis on inclusion and equality, which includes a student-led housing commission involving students and faculty hiring decisions and prioritizing inclusive, inclusive physical spaces. Um, emphasis is, oh my goodness, that's not a word. An emphasis on safety and sustainability. Um, they also had the idea for a farmer's market in West Campus, expanding CMHC access. And then uh, what I thought was a fun one, the idea of a spirit week here at UT. I thought that that was uh, very unique and uh, I didn't have a problem with that. I thought that that's, I think that's, that's a nice idea. I'm, it may be unique to their, uh, to the, uh, to this election cycle, but I am going to uh, bring up, this has been proposed several times over the last few years. So it's, it's not um, a new idea, but it is unique to them for this. It's a cycle. nice, it's a nice, it's a nice break in, in all of the other other platforms i personally i mean i kind of have the same reservations about it that i do with simone and Lynn's. that some of these i look at and i'm kind of like can we really involve students and in faculty hiring decisions like does that does that i i've never heard of such a thing and i i don't really know how feasible that is and i say that as someone like it could be feasible but i'm sitting i look at that and i'm like huh it reminds you know it reminds me of War uh, Elizabeth Warren's, um, what was it, the Responsible Capitalism Act, which would require, you know, certain businesses large enough to have uh, uh, representatives of the workers sitting on the board. It reminds me somewhat of that in that sense. Yeah, it's like it's a great idea, but but can I, that actually happen? I do have a complaint about Anna and Winston's campaign, though, and it's the fact that they don't have a website, which makes it very hard to view their uh, well, issues. Could, they have a, a website. If Where? you go on their Facebook page, it's on their website. That's Why is it not linked through their Twitter? Well, it's on their Facebook page because that's how I found it. So, oh, yeah, that's a pro gracious. tip. If, if you want to find, again, more information on these on these campaigns, I tell you, go to their websites. And if they don't have their website, at least on their Facebook page, then that's just bad judgment on their part. But uh, the websites usually will outline in much better detail uh, what their platforms are. Um yeah, but again, I I, I I I applaud some of the gumption of these, but I these seem a little bit more um, what I would think to be realistic uh, than you know some of the other platforms. But uh, you know, again, so there's always there a few um, more broader issues that I I don't necessarily think that they're they're going to be able to address in the way that they say that they can. This is actually a really nice site. It's it is it's very nice. I gotta applaud all of the websites of the uh, various various campaigns. They came to play. I was I was impressed. You know, I th I thought Simone and Lynn they had really good graphics on theirs, and of course that should never go into whether or not you decide to on a candidate. But um, I care about it because we're in the twenty first century, and if you don't know how to make a good website, then shame on you i guess i'm gonna just throw it out here that i'm i'm pretty sure that every single campaign used squarespace in case you're curious especially adam bergman's because his is whatever it is, is the the adam there's is definitely there's is definitely adam squarespace.org dot squarespace dot so it's like okay yeah um but at the very least it's good to see and actually now that i'm looking through these platforms uh, for the Anakin winston i like how long like which not They're to detailed. say that length is necessarily important but it's definitely they've got more on single issues than some of the other candidates have for well and on their platform i know they like condensed a bunch of issues until they they kind of grouped them all together um which i really appreciated so if you read into those paragraphs more than it'll be um more detailed but yeah i i liked the organization of it so uh yeah, yeah so I, I i that's you know that analysis of the campaign platforms i i won't you know i i declined to comment on in any way um i will append a kind of lawyerly disclosure at the top of the podcast but i i want to talk more broadly in the last segment here just about Voting in SG elections in general. I wrote a piece for the order um, called The Economics of SG Voting. And 
y'all can look at my other pieces. I am broadly not in favor of political participation or voting or, or what have you. I mean, I, I think politics is by and large poisonous and that political disengagement is a perfectly fine option for most people. And in fact, is the rational option for, for most people in most instances. However, I will add the codicil to that, that voting in student government elections actually makes sense. Now, the math that I did on this apparently doesn't stand up to modern standards of the calculus of voting, but the way I looked at it was you take the entire student government budget and, you know, you divide it by the decisiveness of your vote. So just as a historical note, participation in student government elections has always been pretty low. So Catastrophically low. Isn't it average, like around 20%-ish hovers? It, it hovers between 10 to 30%, and that 30% is an outlier, mostly because of the runoff situation with Colton Mraz. Well, remember, runoffs are a very common thing. When I was doing the research for getting the single transferable vote, uh, a runoff happened approximately every other year. Colton Mraz Roz's year was a bit um, was a bit of a, an outlier in having the only time we've ever had three elections in the single uh, in the same year, which was terrifying. Um, but like participation came around 17, 18 percent. Sure, yeah, and I think runoffs were even worse at twelve percent ish. Right, so it it fluctuates anywhere between twelve and thirty percent. What that means, though, is that the decisiveness of your vote, the the impact of your vote on the eventual outcome is actually quite high relative to any other election you're going to participate in. I mean, outside of like very small town um, municipal elections, this is probably the highest decisiveness that your vote is going to have, the highest power that your vote's going to have in terms of its its ability to decide who the winner is, especially with the, the ranked you know voting system. Um, you're going to have the ability to have a substantive impact on the outcome of the election. And so the way I did the math on that was to just purely take the decisiveness of your vote, which at the time of the article, I think, was like one divided by like 12,000 something, and multiply that by the entirety of the student government to get a kind of rough calculus, ec economic utility of your vote. And then just put that in terms of your hourly wage. One thing to to remember is that, you know, student government voting in student government elections is actually quite simple. It it uses your UTEID. You log on. It's all online. You go. It, it can take you know five minutes really. Um, so it's not a huge time you know spend out of your day. And it, it actually, if you look at the numbers, I think it makes sense. Um, I'm not going to be voting because Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, I, I think it actually does make sense for students to have a meaningful impact, whatever that vote may be. Um, it, it's, it's important that students, you know, understand the scope of, of student government when they're voting, understand how that money is spent in terms of administrative costs. And, in fact, even in the article, I took those administrative costs as fixed, essentially saying that whatever you're not going to change the the um, you know administrative cost allocation, even with just the remaining fifty two percent of the budget or wh whatever it was, your vote still makes sense because it takes five minutes. Um, and th so this will be one of the rare instances in which I say it. You know, it actually is something that that most students should do if if they are inclined if they're interested um now of course taking time out of your day to become informed about about voting is a different calculus you know that is is 
listening to this podcast even is probably an hour out of your day. So maybe that is not worth it. Who knows? It's it's really up to you. Um, but I think this is one of the rare instances in which political participation is something that is actually powerful and, and actually has an impact on the way that funds are spent. Um, and so I, I will make the rare suggestion. Uh, you will never hear it's it. It's rare. For yeah. those of you who know Wes Dodson, to hear this come out of his mouth, I'm, I'm kind of shocked right now. Wes barely supports having society, let alone participating <laughs> in it. Correct. Um, so this is going to be one of the rare instances in which I think that participation is a rational you know, thing that, that, that most students should do. Um, now, if you're a zero information voter... That's one thing. Um, you know, if if you're a, a a low information voter, that's you know another thing. Again, it, it it doesn't matter. It doesn't take all that long to become informed. Um, and I, I I do actually encourage students to participate to to look at the way that campaign f- or not campaign funds, but student government funds are distributed. Um, because there's a lot of money potentially on the line. You know, if if we you know, accepted a policy that fundamentally restructured the way that stipends are, are allocated or the way that funds are dispersed to organizations there's a lot of money on the line and and your organization could benefit really incredibly and again i'm not making any policy suggestions you know i, I it's outside the scope of my position but i i really do think that this is one of the few instances in which students should get out there they should vote um and yeah i mean it it almost feels like this is my soul like hurts a little bit because I, I can I, hear I, I i think i can hear uh hear hell freezing over yeah no a it's, bit. i hear the ice crackling under my feet Oof. um but yeah no this is this is me fully endorsing political engagement rather than disengagement well and i'll take the analytics out of it and just say you know y'all your your tuition money your taxpayer money if you are if you are a resident of the state of texas is going to funding this university right everyone at this university deserves to have a university that works for them and they deserve to be able to feel like they are a part of you know i don't mean to be cheesy but you know the longhorn community and so this is one of your ways of doing that if you feel that there is a way to make this university better not just for you but for other people you need to go out and make your voice heard. You know, I, I love the phrase, if you if you don't vote, you can't complain. I hate that phrase. Really. I love that phrase. I I'm, complain all the time. You I do, rarely and vote. I, and but I'm, I call you out for it when you do. And it's, it's you your do. fault that you're not voting and not getting your exactly, voice Exactly, that's no, your fault. No, 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 because my vote doesn't matter and because no one's vote. We're matter. not going to, this is a whole. Votes matter. We could do, we could have an entirely different bot podcast as to why you are wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> that's not what this podcast is and about. And you will take my vote out of my cold, dead hands. But no, this is actually one of the rare instances in which. So I yeah, make your voices heard. You know, be be involved. Try to make a UT that works for you and works for everyone. Again, we're not endorsing specific campaigns, but I just am definitely not endorsing. Wes especially is not yep. endorsing them, but also myself, I am I am not endorsing. But just you know, read up on the on the platforms and see who and, you like best. And do remember, even if you are one of those sitting at home and thinking, ah, but they can't really tell the admin to do anything. It's just a suggested platform. That may be true. That may be true for getting actual administrative changes done. But Wes made a very very important point earlier: is that they still have somewhere in the ballpark 
of $50,000 to give to student orgs on campus. That's a lot of money. I should clarify that they they have 20000 that they've historically distributed, but if you if you allocate costs differently, then yeah, you could be looking at potentially 50000 I mean, th- there's... There's a lot of potential play in the budget depending on who is in the assembly and, and depending on who is the you know, at the head of the executive alliance. Yeah, a little bit goes a long way in this election. So it's important that you do get out there and vote. And by get out there, I mean it's on your phone. You can do it while eating lunch. Yeah, almost all of the campaigns will link to the, the vote you know, the link to go access the voting page. Uh, it's also, I believe, on the Dean of Students website. Um, but here I'm going well, to steal... Well, I think I can give it to you if you give me just half Does it exist yet? Um, I think it's the same one as last If time. it does, we'll try to post it in the show notes. Um, uh, UtexasVote.org. Uh, there we go. So here I'm going to steal the host mic back from Candace as we go into our end of podcast segment about what you are consuming. Um, I have just the best consumption that I think I've ever had. It was phenomenal. It was Uncut Gems. Wow. Everyone, I've heard about this movie movie. from everyone. And I, and you know, I, I'm hesitant because, you know, Adam Sandler has disappointed me in the past. But I, I've just been hearing fantastic things about that the, movie. The Adam Sandler in this movie is no Adam Sandler that has ever existed before, nor shall we ever see his like again <laughs> upon this earth. It was <laughs> incredible. He plays the kind of chaos of – it's actually – it's you know really funny – um, I was thinking, but we're learning about cash flows and finance, and this is a great example of of how cash flows are are incredibly important. Um, you know, he's borrowing money from here, he's spending money, he's betting money. The the kind of you know he lives lavishly, but he's living essentially debt to debt, payoff to payoff, and it's incredible to kind of watch him you know, oscillate between this kind of subservient guy who is just constantly pleading with his debtors um or sorry yeah with his yeah with his debtors and 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 this other you know person who's this powerful jewel broker who has all of this kind of power over his employees um i i didn't relish the power he has over his female employee that he is also has a a, a kind of relationship with um but yeah, no, it was it was really incredible in the way that they and you'll see this in the and I don't want to spoil it, but they they talk about um the the kind of MacGuffin of the movie, this plot or this kind of item that, that moves the plot along in the movie as something that you can see the entire universe in. And then the final scene, um, they really tie it together in such a satisfying way that you can kind of understand that you can see, not the universe, because that's too broad, but you can see modern life in the microcosm of, of Adam Sandler's character, how he, um, it's, it's really, it's phenomenal. It's, it's an A24 movie in all of its many aspects. It, it is just so good. It's disorienting in parts, but it really does kind of come together in a denouement that is is so satisfying, so satisfying. I, I it's one of those things that's it's heady, but it doesn't go over your head because they really do kind of tie it together so perfectly. Um, and so yeah, I have been consuming uncut gems. I don't, I can't even think of a political application of it. I don't want to think of a political application of it. And it was just such a refreshing way of taking two and a half hours out of what has been 
a, a, a busy week um, with student government and, and politics. Well, uh, I have two things that I have been consuming, to use Wes's phrasing. Uh, one is, the first one's kind of a downer, but also, and it does have some political implications, but I think it's something that everybody needs to watch. Maybe unless you have kids, uh, it might not be fun to watch. The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix. Uh, it's a docu-series about the uh, death of Gabriel Fernandez, who was, uh, I think, seven-year-old boy in Southern California who just was horrifically abused by his parents. And I, and I will say, it gets pretty graphic um, in the way that they describe what happened to this little boy, but... It basically, I've only watched the first episode, but basically it follows um, the trials of his parents and how the state of California literally sought the death penalty for the mom's boyfriend for, for what he did to this child, um, but also kind of the failures of the child welfare, welfare services in... Um, because they had investigated these parents before and, and kind of nothing happened. And, you know, the thought of, you know, if something had been done correctly, could this little boy have lived? So moving on from that, it's very depressing, but I still think worth the watch. Um, believe it or not, I am a massive Pete Davidson fan. And some of you might hear that and groan, but I don't really care. Because uh, this gentleman has a new Netflix special that came out last week. Uh, watched it right after I took a very uh, arduous test. And let me tell you, it was funny. I I personally enjoyed it. You know, I everyone kind of makes fun of Pete Davidson because like, oh, he's just Ariana Grande's ex fiance. But like, I've I've personally been a fan of him since he has been a regular in Weekend Update on SNL. I think he's funny. His comedy is very dark. Like he jokes about his dad dying on nine eleven. But like, you know what? I think it's funny, and I I think his comedy special i think it's called alive in new york uh it's worth the watch i pers i personally think so he takes a few jabs at ariana grande that were pretty funny um so yeah yeah it reminds me of that eagles song the lion eyed you can't hide those butthole eyes everybody makes a joke about oh my like he's God. got those like sunken so you like, know he, so you do know he has crohn's disease yeah right? and he jokes about it yeah yeah but just like you know we call him butthole eyes it's like this dude has a chronic illness. Did not come up with the word. Don't use the word outside <laughs> of the context of Pete Davidson. He thinks it's funny. I think it's funny. The Eagles are prescient as ever. Well, you know, he's he's he has a new film premiering at South by Southwest. And I don't have a pass to South by Southwest. I don't have a film pass. But I have an interactive pass. So I am hoping and praying that I will be able to just slip into the to the screening of the King of Staten Island. Because I am I am very excited for that film. Alrighty, Matthew. All right, I've got two suggestions this week. Uh, a you read. are both cheaters. I, I had one. But you droned on about it for so long. So it basically counted as two. Fair also, last week we did two. Um, so I've got two suggestions. Uh, first, is a, uh, there's a watch and there's a read. I'm going to recommend that you watch Picard if you have CBS All Access. If you don't, then I'm sorry. But if you do, it is a fantastic show, especially if you like the next uh, the, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, and especially if you are just a Star Trek fan uh, in particular. It's got a lot of political implications, like all Star Trek does, but it is still a really good and compelling watch. You're going to be interested the entire time, especially if you're a longtime fan of the series, which, if you're a longtime fan, you're probably already watching, but you should just you know, if you're not, make sure to tune in. And for a read, this is a book my computer science teacher recommended me years ago, and I finally just finished it. It's available on Audible if you want it to. It's called Grit by uh, Angela Duckworth, and it's about the kind of passion and perseverance that helps drive people to get things done. How the most more accomplished people in history and also current day 
are people who are more driven by the the actual experience they are trying to seek uh, which it's just really helpful, uh, even though it's really hard to instill that kind of grit that she talks about in the book in yourself. Just remembering that it is a factor helps me stay on topic. Yeah, no. So this has been the Texas Order podcast. I want to remind everybody that I did my best to you know, let you know when I was taking off my Chief Justice robes and putting on my order hat. Um, but just as a general comment, you know, I'm not endorsing anybody. I don't you know, have any positions about the candidates platforms that i aired on this episode but i do and this is rare i do encourage you to vote in these elections um the 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 funds on the line matter the ability of your vote to influence the outcome is rather high in this specific instance it is not high elsewhere but it is one of the rare instances in which you're going to hear me say go out there and vote he's like cringing as he says it's like stabbing myself in the heart Um, i i wish i was recording this expression (laughs) um but with that this has been the texas order podcast i am your most of the time host but this time guest on the podcast west dotson with me today candace baker and matthew cox we will be back here to join you in two or so weeks have a good one Uh, everything that guy just says, bullshit. Thank you.